As Bob Dylan said, it may be the devil or it may be the Lord, but you're going to have to serve somebody. And in modern life, for many of us, that means you must work for somebody or do something for someone or some entity. And how much of our life is spent working? And do we like our job? Do we like what we're doing? Do we enjoy it? Or are we just showing up to make ends meet, so to speak, so I can have money to eat and to rent some place to live or own a house or something like that? And how many jokes in uh, United States television shows have been about hating your job and, you know, slacking off at work and seeing what you can get away with? Uh, You know, so much of our life is spent working, especially now in this sort of hyper-capitalist place that we find ourselves, that burnout, chronic stress, and anxiety are common workplace mental health issues. And... For many people who are returning to the office after COVID-19 restrictions have lifted, they're wondering, why am I coming into this office? So to answer some of these questions about why I'm going to work, how I'm working, but also how can we improve workplaces? How can we make uh, the need to work uh, for people actually a healthy and safe place psychologically and mentally, and yet have people even get purpose from their jobs. In this episode of the Intentional Clinician Podcast with myself, your host, Paul Kraus, licensed professional counselor, we are about to find out. Behavioral scientist, Dr. Bill Howitt, PhD, and uh, has a doctorate in education as well, is the founder and CEO of Howitt HR, also known as Human Resources, and is widely recognized for his expertise in mental health. He has more than 30 years of experience in mental health and addictive disorders, including working with senior executives at progressive and successful organizations nationally and internationally. Dr. Howitt is a mastermind at helping employees and employers work together to reduce mental harm and promote mental wellness at work. He has published more than 500 articles with The Globe and Mail, Counselor Magazine, The Chronicle Herald, Talent Canada, CEO and Safety Leadership Network, and OHS Magazine, and published more than 50 books, including Globe and Mail bestseller, The Cure for Loneliness. Dr. Howitt is the creator of Certificate in Psychologically Safe Leadership, Certificate in Management Essentials, Pathway to Coping and Mental Fitness through the University of New Brunswick. He is active in workplace mental health research, including the CSA 2022 Report, Psychological Health and Safety in the Workplace, Employer Practices in Response to COVID-19. He is a wealth of knowledge, so whether you are a worker, a manager, a leader, somebody who lives with somebody who has to go to work, or an owner of a company, this interview is not one you're going to miss. All right, let's get to the interview. Welcoming to the Intentional Clinician Podcast is Dr. Bill Howitt. Welcome to the show. Oh, thanks for having me, Paul. Glad to be here. Yes, great to have you. And I am excited to get into your expertise here that people are undoubtedly wondering about if they've clicked on this episode. Um, you have been involved in a lot of behavioral science and have a vast background, as we just discussed in the intro. Um, I'm curious about this response to COVID-19 
uh, report that came out in 2022 for the Canadian um, Standard standard, Standards Association. That's right. Yeah. The psychological health and safety in the workplace. Um, can you talk a little bit about that and maybe how that's informed some of your your work? Yeah, I, I will. So to give context, because not I would assume all the listeners are experts in workplace mental health and understand what's happening in the space we term psychological health and safety. Um, so to step back a little bit, there's been a growing movement in organizations to move towards diversity inclusion, which we know about. There's also a growing movement now to pay more attention to workers' mental health because of increased numbers of workers that are experiencing short-term, long-term disability. Um, Before COVID, the World Health Economic uh, Forum and the World Health Organization provided all kinds of data points around how workplace mental health is impacting the economy. In fact, the leading cause of premature death in the planet before COVID was depression, number one. So now that has taken folks like me years and years and years to start to get to more organizations to start to consider workplace mental health. So, so now what's happened with COVID, it's shined a light on this. And we've had increases numbers of challenges with people with stress, uncertainty, the level of volatility in, our, in the economy and in the planet and geopolitics, creating all these extra stressors. So how's that showing up in the workplace? It's been impacting productivity. It's been impacting uh, performance. So in essence, what psychological health and safety is about is removing fear, driving silence out of organizations so people can feel welcome, included, and involved. And employers simply have this challenge to engage and retain employees who willingly want to come to work to do their best work and feel purpose and valued and all those concepts that we understand that drive and put people on what we call the path for flourishing. So very much like the Lozada ratio, ideally what we want to do in the workplace is to get employees, if they can have 2.91 positive emotions to one unpleasant emotion, it's not, it would be a pretty simple concept, but how do you do that? So that's what the study was about, is because psychological safety really is about what are the things you can do to protect employees' experience? So what happens? Employers from a plan, do, check, act, meaning lots of planning. Yes, we want to help our employees. So what are we going to do? We'll give them a resiliency workshop. Surely that will help. So then what we do is we give all our employees a resiliency workshop. Sadly, what are, we've learned from our research is that lots of employers aren't sitting with and checking with the workers and the leaders of what they're actually doing is having an impact. And the challenge now is many times when you use the word mental health, people confuse that with mental illness. We're not talking about mental illness. We're talking about mental health. And all of us have mental health on a continuum that falls from uh, flourishing to languishing, very much like what Keyes originally talked about. So what we discovered in our research, Paul, I think that's interesting, and then I'll come up for air for you on this, is that it's amazing how much intention now is starting to happen in regards to cognitive behavioral therapy, digital mental health apps, products like Calm, wonderful products, all these different apps, tools, interventions, and strategies. 
And there's going to be some frustration by employers if they don't actually take time to evaluate what they're doing is getting the outcome they want. And the accountabilities are starting. You're going to start to see movement in the world of ESGs, environment, social, and governance. You're going to start seeing boards starting to ask, what is the evidence that you're creating an environment that's protecting employers from mental harm, employees, sorry, from mental harm, and promoting mental health? How are you doing that? And what is your evidence, because we're going to be moving from random acts of wellness, Paul, to evidence-based. And here's what the kicker is. How do we control for implicit bias and structural racism in the strategies we're putting in place? We need to stop assuming that if we have a great idea, some program, that it's inclusive for all our workers and we're naming and recognizing their experience as human beings. And so the whole field of workplace mental health is where I spend my time focusing. And what I've kind of have done is I've positioned myself and I lead research as I suggested to you when we were talking earlier with the Canadian, uh, Canada, what we call the Mental Health Commission of Canada, Canadian Psychological Association, uh, large organizations like WorkSafe Prevention Ontario. So we're doing all kinds of research now in the search for evidence to start to inform leaders, decision makers uh, in lead practices. There can, there's no such thing as best practices because that makes a presupposition that what we're doing is good enough. We need to make decisions based on informed evidence and that's where the movement's going. So I hope that gives you a couple of things to get you curious on some questions. Absolutely. I mean, this is something that has been close to my mind or in my psyche for quite a while, ever since I started working as uh, a mental health worker in social service organizations, also known as nonprofits. Uh, And I saw a large disparity between the human resources administration department and their work schedule and kind of how they came and went and what kind of perks they had and the um, frontline bachelor's and master's level clinicians and what they were expected to do and where they came and went and their pay grade, like a mass district. And this is in the U S of course, this is in Chicago and Phoenix, uh, Arizona that I'm talking about. So for me, I, I saw a big disconnect uh, between what they expected out of workers and what they provided to workers. And so for me, I see these these programs sound great. Um, and, and this may be kind of what you're talking about, random acts of, of programming or wellness programming. And they had all these cool ideas, but we're like, well, right, but your standards are that we have to produce 45 clinical hours a week in 40 hours somehow. Also, we're being paid poverty wages we could go work at starbucks for more and also you are angry at us frequently so there was this you know i remember there was this just large disconnect and i was young and in my 20s and so i i uh sort of took advantage of being a male in counseling i'll say i'm that's a minority right now in the u.s Uh, males are in the minority and i knew that they needed male therapists so i sort of spoke up to the human resources and administration department because i knew i could probably get another job elsewhere and I was met with a lot of pushback when I kind of called out some of their policies um, and how they treated the workers just on a base level. And I said, OK, you got this cool program to like have us lose weight. 
but we have no breaks all day and you provide pretzels. You know, there's like what, like everyone, you know, you could earn money off your health insurance if you lost 20 pounds, but it's like with what time, you know, there's no time to do it. And so I saw, I think I saw in real time what you're talking about. Like they were starting to go, oh, we should have mental health for our workers too, not just the people we're serving in the community. And here's our way of doing it. We're going to hire this like cool little company to like come in and give you yogurt and give you this like weight band or whatever. And we're like, no, this isn't going to work for us. What we want is we want less productivity standards, you know, because you are a nonprofit supposedly. And we want to be able to work with our clients more in a holistic way. And we want to be able to have, you know, a couple breaks a day, right? Which they said we got according to state policy, but wasn't really, I mean, come on. If you've worked in a nonprofit and you're out there right now, you know what I'm talking about. There is that that doesn't exist, right? So I, I think I like this a lot because you're actually looking at evidence versus like little cool ideas from consulting companies that say, oh, we'll give all your people a Fitbit and it'll be really sweet and you know, incentives for whatever. You know, we, we need to figure out like how is how do you not burn out? That's a topic people have been talking about. Mm-hmm. And what does that mean? What is sustainability for a company? If, if the company relies on the fact that we have thousands of people graduating counseling programs and we can just work them to the bone for four years and then they go work in a bank somewhere because they're burned out, I mean, that'll still make them the money, but then what is that doing to the field, right? So that's that, those are my thoughts. I don't know where you want to take it from there. I think I'm going to, I'm going to say something to you that, that you'd be interesting now. And this question will come out of left field. So if I asked you in that organization what gets treated better, a human being or a photocopier, how would you answer that? Oh, the photocopier for sure, especially the one that could scan in PDFs. Yeah. Okay. So let me tell you why I agree with you. Let me explain this to you. So what you're telling me is a very, very common problem I see in many organizations I work with all across North America. And I do, you know, and consult in other areas in the world as well, is the following. So if you buy a photocopier, Paul, you need money to get access to the photocopier, and you're not incorrect. And if you want access to a workforce, you need money to hire them and develop what's called an employee uh, employer contract. Now, with your photocopier, you're going to probably lock the doors and put some insurance on it to protect it, to put some controls in place. For your employees, it'll give them some benefits. You might give them EAP, you might give them some sick time, some disability stuff, and you might give them some incentives. You might give them some extra health spending account dollars, whatever type of organization you're in. Now, here's where it gets different. With the photocopier, what is the juice that runs the photocopier? What's electricity, right? You're very clear you need a source of energy. Now, what's the juice for a workforce? It's not money because that's access. It's not benefits, that's insurance. What you're in essence talking about is what many employers simply miss that they simply miss that human beings need purpose, they need to have meaning, they need to have experience, they need to feel valued, they need to have a voice, they need to feel respected, and they need to actually realize that the trade, what they're giving and getting, makes sense for them to buy into it. Because when you start having therapists or any other professional coming to work because they want a paycheck, Versus coming to work because they feel meaning and purpose, you have a problem. Now, with the photocopier, it's interesting. Some lovely human being will come once a month and do preventative maintenance. 
then check to make sure the photocopier is okay and care for it. What's a preventative maintenance for human beings? Oh, that's right. We often wait till they break. Or, and once they break and they burn out, then we pay attention. I spent, like you, Paul, a long time in, in the world of mental health. I practiced in the field of psychology for 30 plus years. I've seen thousands and thousands of patients. And the things that, that I've actually learned over the years, and my training was cognitive behavioral therapy. You know, I've worked closely. I've some of the mentors that I've had in my past. I've privileged to work with Dr. Glasser when he was alive. I got a privilege to work with Dr. Ellis. That's how old I am when he was alive. So when you start getting mentors that we now have evolved now, emotional literacy is becoming very important. And I was very holistic, my training from EMDR, the therapy, all these, you know, hypnotherapy, written books and this stuff, and specialized in addictive disorders. The one thing I've actually learned, though, if you pause and think about what we're trying to do for workplace mental health, what we're trying to do is help people develop habits. But what we got to remember, and you just actually said something really critically important. Think about a fish tank. So if I can get Paul meditating and walking and fit and losing his weight and all these things we think are good for him. But we put them back in a dirty tank where people are yelling at them. There's no incentive, doesn't feel valued. All that stuff won't last. Resiliency is based off what I call the three E's. Experience. So we have had some experiences during COVID, post-traumatic growth. Education, what you learn. And your environment. Social determines health and your environment. So if employers really want to have a positive impact in the employee experience and really impact employees and help them become resilient, and then they have to be aware of that really every interaction in the workplace is an opportunity to create positive emotions or negative emotions. And ultimately, why do we do rewards programs? Oh, and this. Why do we create policies? Because we want positive. Why do we give people vacate? Oh, positive. We're trying to create space and time for the recognition that employees who have more positive emotions and flourishing are more productive, have more protective factors from breaking, and are able to actually bring more of themselves to work and enjoy what they do. And the reality is, Paul, where I'm really interested in exploring with you is the value for employers to get the following down real quick. There is no panacea. There is no magic app. There is no magic program. There is no magic leadership program. There is no magic assessment. What we have is human beings having experiences. And if we can actually go through a plan, do, check, act. And if we think about at the end of it, and I know the the audience can't see my hands, but you can. Let's look at this. I'm going to take your example you gave. It was wonderful. Workload. Work demand. That is a psychosocial factor. Work demand could be a drain or it can be a charge. If your work feels fair, it's a charge. You feel, but if you feel overwhelmed, it's a drain. The byproduct of that is a psychosocial hazard. Burnout, fatigue, errors. It could be mental illness. The middle part is the protective factors. What can employers reasonably do? And there's the, and what ha, we have to realize, and you and I know this because we practice with patients. If you're going to give someone information, Paul, it goes to their executive function. 
but it has to navigate this thing called their midbrain, all their emotions, to get to their basal ganglia where it becomes habitual habit center. And we actually know because of the people's default neural network, attention spans are less than three minutes, typically around 90 seconds. Even though I'm talking to you, your mind's wandering. So, so human beings right now are challenged. The heuristic shortcuts of many of us created in the workplace because of dysregulation when we get stressed and overwhelmed and all the coping from the adversities happening in life. Employers, the days when we're learning quickly, suck it up, buttercup, push, push, push. Those days are over. The employers that get that joke are the ones that are going to have thriving, successful organizations. The ones that say, yeah, 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 next quarter, push, 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 are finding they're going to be more increasingly challenged to retain a sustainable workforce. Yeah, well, I'm glad you have the evidence to back it up. But I agree anecdotally as a person uh, being in the workforce. And uh, I created a clinic in Grand Rapids, uh, Michigan, where I'm at right now, uh, based on not really many books. I did the book of it's called the Art of Medical Leadership book. Uh, I like that book. I kind of based it on that, which has some of the principles I think you have in here. But also just kind of... uh, there's a famous Seinfeld episode called Opposite Day when <laughs> when George uh, just decides to do the opposite of what he would do. And uh, it's probably the most uh, watched Seinfeld episode of all time or favorite. And I kind of designed this clinic based on the opposite of what my social services experiences were. Um, and it was and it's and, it, and it's hard to do that. And, and that was kind of by instinct. But the more I'm studying this because I am trying to figure out how do I make the most sustainable clinic in this area? How do I attract workers that want to stay here for the long term? What kind of money do they need? Mm-hmm. What are their needs in terms of autonomy and freedom? What, what is the purpose they want to be centered around? What kind of support do they need? Do they have enough support? Is it the right kind of support? A lot of this, I've just been asking them. That's why you said there's no panacea. I've been asking them, uh, what, what feels good to you about this clinic? What doesn't? What can we work on? What, what, do we, what do we not have? So I'm trying to use a bottom-up approach instead of a top-down approach. And, um, and, and I found that that you know, has been pretty successful because we, you know, we went through some changes over the years after you know, five years in, in business. And now we've gotten to the point where uh, a lot of the clinicians said, well, the pay here is, is so good that um, why would I leave to another group practice? There is no other group practice that pays as well in this area. So there's that. Well, that, that puts more stress on the administration because then we have to figure out how to make it work on a little less money for the administration, Mm -hmm. uh, costs, but yet stress wise for the administration is worth it. And then also now, how do we build more meaning? What do we need more of? Um, we got a huge thing, which was autonomy. Let us schedule whenever we want. Let us work whenever we want. We said, all good go well that was actually from day one (laughs) schedule whenever you want work whenever you want here's the resources uh the obviously the staff who answer phones have to do a different thing but but i tried to do with the what i would have wanted out of a workplace and i do think that if what i've seen is if employers focus on profit over people and if they focus on the way they've always done it that that there's gonna be there's a lot of cost to that versus cultivating a workforce, which is going to cost you more up front, 
right? That feels grateful for their job, that feels excited to come to work, that feels like they're not overworked, that they have a balance. That is going to get you more in the long term. But like you said earlier, before the uh, recording button, is that you did work for the stock market. The stock market in the US, at least, is focused on this quarter. What is going on this quarter? What is the maximize? How do we maximize this quarter, even if it means we gut some business or gut some building we own? How do yeah. we ma- how do we write that off? How do we maximize? That trickles down, I think, into business schools. I don't know. I didn't go to business school because that's how I see businesses acting in the U.S. that are run by larger corporations. That's what the, the, that's a, a stereotype, but that's what I see. And in fact, two guys called me last week from Austin, Texas, and they said, "Hey, we'd love to buy your counseling office." And I said, "Please never call me again. I don't want to sell my counseling office. I literally." got out of corporate wellness because of people like you and and people that are buying it up for a quick time. I'm not doing that. So sorry, that was a little political, but essentially I see what they're doing, right? It's like, how much lemon do you, how much juice can you squeeze out of this lemon? But then like, you know, what, what happens next? You know, the lemon it's gone. So I don't know. What are your thoughts? I think it's good. I think the thing that resonates to me when you, with your share is the, is that you're actually talking about the incentives that that that, that are value based to the people who want to work with you? I will tell you, money is not a motivator. Uh, people uh, that may or may not know much about you know you know Heisenberg principle and Dill's theory and all of the stuff. I, I have a PhD in IO psychology and I have a PhD in counseling psychology, so I kind of look at the world through that. And, and the thing of, that's fascinating to me about it is, is that when you think about human motivation, it's typically, typically what human beings actually really want is money is the substance of how I get what I need to get by. So if people feel what they're getting paid is fair, the research is pretty clear, both in Canada and the United States. You know, once you get to a, a, a compensation to a certain level, you know, in Canada, you know, the happiest people in Canada are making somewhere between seventy and seventy-five thousand dollars. And then once you go above that salary, there's no evidence that you know maybe things are easier and more accessible. Yes, money gives you access. You know, it's nice to know you could buy a car and not worry about it. But when people get to the point where they get satisfied with what they have and living with inside their means, it's the other stuff, the juice of the culture. To your point, one is autonomy. One is giving and trusting that people will do their work, trusting them that they that they their their point of view of what their methodologies or how they're doing it or how they're practicing and how they're reporting and how they're facilitating in a clinical setting. I'm I'm assuming. You know, you do when you do your casework and you talk and you collaborate, then you starting can start sharing how what's working for me. And I had a client that start. So then you start creating that that knowledge transfer piece where people see value in helping each other. And that is the the magic of culture where people actually realize as and this is what I think, you know, Martin great work from Penn State and resiliency and learned optimism, when you can start thinking that you're involved in something that's a little bit bigger than you, that you're, it gives you purpose. Because for me, I'm sounds like we do the same. I wake up every day excited because I 
want to contribute to workplace mental health. I want to be a voice to help people because I've actually seen it that what, what you do as a leader by intentionally listening to what your team says or thinks and creating space for them to be able to provide you a point of view without fear of reprisal creates a space where people actually feel welcome and want to come. So it's not just the money, Paul, that will keep them. Yes, the comp would probably be good and maybe better than others, but that doesn't keep people in a place that they don't feel safe. Definitely. I, yeah, I recently had a friend or who, well, they'll try to remain anonymous, a friend in a large city on the West coast tell me that they were going to move from a $400,000 a year job to a 280,000 a year, uh, a year job. And I was like, why would you do that? Right. Because they live in a very expensive city yeah. that way. Yeah. And they said, because I'm in hell every day. I hate this job. The people are mean and the rewards are only monetary. I get bonuses every quarter. It's really cool. I got this new car, electric car. I got this, I got that, but I can live off less. And this place, they are awesome. They, they have these you know, retreats. They have these group meetings. They have this development practice. They want to help me with my career, but yeah, no, they're not paying more than that. And, you know, and I, I thought, that's that's a perfect example. It just happened last week, so it's in my head. But another thing here, I, I'm curious, what would you say, what are some of your, obviously people need to like read your books and articles here if they really want a full assessment or hire you as a consultant, but what are some things that you think you would kind of put out there for people who, let's just say you're you're new to the corporate world or maybe you're starting a small business. What would you say some important tips are for, for them to help their workers feel valued and, and feel like they have meaning and that they're not just some sort of cog in the machine? Yeah, great question. So there's, there's a couple of what I'm going to just call them um, uh, basic hygiene things. So this might sound what I'm about to say is like Dr. Obvious and really, really simple. So I apologize. But one of the things we have actually done in organizations, we've created this position called a leader. And these leaders have been assigned with the responsibility to provide guidance on how to achieve a standard. Well, we sometimes forget to ask leaders with all the stuff we do with leaders, if actually leaders like human beings. See, when I was working in New York and I was in a, my last role was a chief of staff in a large financial organization. And one of the things I used to say to some of the senior folks is that you know, they would be complaining about someone. I said, do you actually like working with people? Because it's kind of an inconvenient truth that human beings are going to be inconvenient at the most inconvenient time. And if you don't actually like working with people, the reality is you only exist because you're people. Your job is to serve them. You're, we're, I don't care how much we're paying because, I mean, we pay people millions of dollars so that, that we're, you know, it doesn't matter about that. It matters that you're working with your team to help us achieve our North Star. So the, to answer your question, I think it's really valuable for small employers, for large employers to really think about the leadership position in regards, and you're going to hear, without sounding like a buzz term, how do you become a psychological safe leader? It's not intuitive. 
And what happens is, is the thing that we often forget, most of leadership training is about how to interact, how to communicate, how to provide direction, how to be assertive, how to deal with change, how to do this, how to deal with conflict. What we miss is how do you deal with interpersonal skills? Leaders who cannot learn how to self-regulate, learn how to have emotional intelligence, to be able to be aware that every action they have could be a positive or negative. Their wake matters. If they're driven on by their results and they're all anxious and they're in unpleasant emotions because they're fearful they may be perceived to fail, fail, sorry, fail, there's a problem. You and I both know human beings who live in a world of perfectionism, who are concerned about failing, if they make a mistake and are fearful of that, are very shame-based. And when people are caught in shame, the antithesis of the emotion they need to get out of that is empathy. So they can't have empathy for themselves or their reports. So you're going to have a lot of leaders who don't have any emotional awareness, who don't understand emotional literacy, all the great work that Yale's talking about. They're not, they're not clear of how to do that. That's a big problem because many times up to 70, 80% of people quit a workplace, don't quit their job, they're quitting their leader. And so that's a good place to start. And then the second part that they can do that can be helpful is to, for the, for, and I say this to people and I'll do it, for the love of God, look, we, do, we don't need any more strategies. We don't need mental health strategies. We don't need engagement strategies. We don't need uh, rewards. What we need is an employee experience strategy. How do we integrate all the different programs and be mindful of what we're doing with intention to create positive emotions and unpleasant emotions that we're trying to protect and, and, and do the following, Paul. If I'm going to send someone to a program or create a policy, what are the key performance behaviors that I want people to do and to develop habits that will drive the KPIs that I care about? to drive the business outcome. So let me walk you through that. So if I had one of my KPBs is I want to increase the percent of my workforce that spends more time flourishing than languishing. That means that that from a behavioral base, there are things that are happening that we have done to help drive people to learn how to flourish more. And, and, and what we have to really understand about flourishing that people don't understand is flourishes, flourishing people know how to live well when they're feeling unwell. And they also understand that it's that unpleasant emotions are not our enemy. Like they're important. Like I'm, my newest book coming out uh, globally in October is called No Regrets. And the, at the core of that is this, that's an unpleasant emotion. And what we're trying to teach people that unpleasant emotions aren't negative. They're part of who you are. So where am I going with this? The key performance behavior, if I send someone to a resiliency or a mental fitness program, is designed to help someone develop a mental fitness plan that can help them create positive emotions, as well as providing the employer input on what they're doing that could be charging or draining their employee battery. So we do that well. What's a KPI? Well, we reduce our turnover rates. And if what's a what's a business outcome? Well, we're going to hit our business targets or revenue or et cetera. 
In the Russell 1000 in the United States, you have the S&P 500, but we also have the Russell 1000. There's all kinds of research starting to come out to show that, that if we can actually help workers flourish, increase their wellness, we can increase the organization EBITDA, profitability, success. So the key to this all is for employers now to don't create necessarily more stuff, is actually look at what they're doing first and say, what behaviors, why are we doing this? What are we expecting from it? And what are the habits we want out of it? Versus saying, we're having a workshop today. And everyone goes for a workshop, they survive the workshop, but they leave and, be, and we don't correct for the forgetting curve pole. So what happens, they came in, there's no knowledge is useless without transformation. So what we've done is we say, oh, this will do it. Here's a vitamin B12 shot of knowledge and this will change your life. Well, that's silly. Like it would do the equivalent of getting on a Stairmaster once and thinking you're going to be shredded. You need to do the bloody thing over and over and over and over to be fit. You got to eat healthy. Mental health in the workplace is about doing behaviors over and over. And then there's no goal line, Paul. There is no time. I got asked, a CEO asked me the other day, we're do, I'm doing a big program for them. He said, so Bill, when's the ending? I said, well, I got, I'm 59 my next birthday. I think I got about 11 more years. I'm pretty sure I can find someone to replace me. He goes, what the hell are you talking about? I said, yeah, well, I, he goes, you're telling me we're going to do this for 11 more years? I said, well, when are you retiring? We've got to make sure there are other folks know that this goes on forever too, right? And he kind of, he, the penny dropped for him. He goes, you're right. This is like the electricity dude. This is the price that employers are starting to realize they need to start spending dollars in supporting prevention. And here's something, here's the most important part. You said it today, you may not have realized it. If we're going to create a program, accessibility, when are we going to give people permission to have time to do it? So in the world of occupational health and safety, we teach people to put their hard hats on. We get time to do safety tool talks. But for mental health, we got to give space during the work time because what happens, people don't realize them. People say, we can't afford it. Well, if you understand anything about human behavior, you have presentism. You have people that will do trivia, numb. Human beings, when they get stressed, gear down. They go into energy saving mode, like a, like a screen saver. So they kind of, I saw, for example, I was in New York one time real quick. I looked at a lady who's looking at her screen. And I just, from my, my old forensics day, I said, hmm, this is odd. And I just thought it hit me. I don't know why. It's kind of that, you know, Malcolm Gladwell blink kind of thing. Something, my instincts just said something's odd. So I looked at the clock and I pegged the clock and the position her head was in. I went back, went to the bathroom, talked to some other people. And I came back about an hour later. She's in the exact same position. I just said, walked over and I, and I said, hi, you want to be careful not to startle. And she kind of come out of it. And she was kind of in a trance. And I said, everything okay? I want to make sure. No, no, I'm just some family stuff. I'm just trying to process some things. My having some challenges with my husband. How many people get lost in their life that we don't give them space to help them through the day? So that's the point, Paul. This is, I think some employers... The stuff I'm saying about the old school folks, profit, profit, profit. But there's a movement. 
I don't try to convert those folks because I don't have the energy. I'm too old for that right now. I'm working with folks who care about their employees. I actually am at the point in my career now, I get to pick the employer. And I pick who I, I pick CEOs that convince me they care. And the woes are the ones that I'm now bringing all my resources and my knowledge and my experience to help work with them to create a place employees want to come, not have to come. I, I love that. Uh, I love this, the whole analogy and the story and, and everything, because I do think that is the future of work, because I, I do think that the grand narrative of the way America has this sort of individualistic, at least United States, has a sort of individualism, push, 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 sleep when you're dead type <laughs> mentality. They're, they're just, it's built into our, our workplace. Uh, somebody recently showed me, because, you know, in the U.S., there's sort of this toxic uh, spew of negative things towards people that are poor uh, or don't have much money. It's been going on for about 20 or 30 years, but I actually found out it's been going on a lot longer than that. Somebody sent me this thing that they had they had found articles going back to the 1930s where CEOs were saying nobody wants to work anymore, <laughs> as sort of like a as sort of like a uh, slight to you're a lazy ass. So it's like these, these statements. And I, and then when, um, after the pandemic in the U S we had like a pandemic assistance in the U S and a lot of people were able to uh, get pandemic assistance individually and people kept, and, and people say, Oh, nobody wants to work. They just want to live off the assistance. But funny enough, I don't know, three quarters more money was put into the pandemic assistance for the corporations in the U S which was a forgivable loan, which was not really a loan. It was just basically millions and millions of dollars printed uh, for for the corporation. So it's like when they do it, it's fine. But when workers are are saying, "Hey, I don't feel as valued," you know, I I feel like I'm worth more than this. And and it's not just the money, like you said. It's like it's like the the time off, the ability to have a, a schedule where you feel like you're re-energized, like you have purpose. Um, somebody was saying to me the other day that like something like. Somebody said another another one. I killed for fifteen dollars an hour when I was your age, like the old folks. Well, fifteen dollars an hour in nineteen eighty was about fifty seven dollars an hour now, something like that. It's, a, it's approximately comp, uh, so fifty seven dollars an hour now. You know that's a lot of money, but fifteen dollars an hour now is not a lot of money. That gets you about like uh, a few things at the fast food shack, you know, or whatever. So it's it's the perspective has. Like you said, you're you're working with people that care about uh, their employer employees and want to create a sustainable workforce, because there is a mentality, and I don't know why. Maybe just people in power are there too long, where they they found out how to do it. They relied on some cultural tropes and some sort of you know old school mentalities of do it my way or else you're out, uh, inflexibility, and that has driven a lot of the workforce. And that's why I do think a lot of young people in the US, uh, they are very selective over who they work for. Uh, I talked to a lot of people in their 20s right now um, due to owning a clinic, but also um, clients. And they they are very particular. Uh, and it has not almost, it has to do with money in terms of compensation. Like, is this fair? Like you said, is this a fair compensation for what I'm doing? But I hear a lot from them is that they cannot tolerate um, this top-down authoritarian uh, type model of the old workforce, because, and I heard James Hillman say this as a psychologist. He's a, you know him from uh, 
I don't know, he was a Jungian for a while and then he became his own thing. But he said, you have to earn authority. You, you can't declare that you have authority. Authority must be earned. Um, and I do think the young people are saying, why should I work for you? I, you know, I can live off a little bit of money here. I can, you know, get my, go to my local urban farm and get groceries and, and work part-time and enjoy my life. And just, I won't have money for retirement perhaps, but why should I come work for you? What do you, what are you actually doing? Or are you just using me for your own kind of private yacht situation? So I feel like that's a, that's a, that's a trend I'm seeing with the people in their twenties, which is why I'm glad you're working with these CEOs because the young people are also getting much more educated about business. I think, I don't know, I don't want to credit Reddit on this, but if you've ever been on Reddit, have you ever been on that website? Yeah. Yeah. The young people are having discussions about, um, you know, MBA level, uh, masters of business administration type topics and economics and what's fair and what's going on. And, and they're kind of are throwing a lot of mud at corporations who don't treat their employees well, while also lionizing corporations that do, you know, kind of like deifying these corporations that do treat their people well. It's like everyone on the works there and everybody throws mud, you know, the internet culture, it's a lot of mud throwing, <laughs> but I do think that, you know, say what we want about that, but this is, I don't think this trend is going away due to the information age knowledge is readily available. Um, one of the things I did, I'll put myself in this category. I'm 40 now, but when I was in my early, when I was in my twenties, I was a bit of a disruptor because I was working at this place for poverty wages and doing 45 hours a week. <laughs> and it was a nonprofit. But there's a website called guidestar.org or guidestar.com or something. And you can look up the tax returns of the nonprofits in the U.S. because it's technically public information. And you have to post the earnings of the top five earners on the page. And so I did get, this is kind of funny that I got in quote trouble for this, but I couldn't actually get in trouble. It was more of a shame, shaming. I, I uh, downloaded that. PDF and including a few of the HR people that I'd had beef with were making $300,000 each. And one of the doctors was making $500,000 and we were all making $33,000 and whatever. I get it. They had more experience. They were older, et cetera. But I, I saw that as a significant gap. And so I, I emailed it to a bunch of our, our clinicians saying, did you know this information is publicly available? And uh, after that, I'm not, after that, we got a raise. So I think... <laughs> <laughs> I think that I think that helped, but um, I somebody said they got angry and they said you can't send that information on work email. I said okay, I'll send it on my personal email, but I don't know why it's on the internet for free. I can find it. So I don't know what your thoughts are about the young people kind of like learning about business because when I was in school in the U.S., there is not a curriculum about economic, hardly any curriculum about economics. There's hardly any curriculum around personal finance. And there's certainly not really a, much of a business curriculum, although that's something I think we're starting to see more of. What are your thoughts on that? Well, I'll, I'll laser in where, where my focus is. You said something, I believe, I, I, I believe it was KPMG at a study that I recently read that one of the number one, it could have been one of that might be mixing up a consulting house, but one of the big ones around the number one factor for recruiting young people in my, cause I'm older, but anybody under 30, <laughs> uh, 35, 30, I think with 30, um, was emotional well-being in regards to what the employer was doing to take care of how they experienced. Now, how I was parented is different than how my children were parented. So it says society, we made different changes like, you know, 
when I grew up, you know, getting a broom across the you know the side of your you know body for correction was quite common, you know. And and but did we move towards where you know we changed our expectation and we moved from I didn't know I was allowed to ask a question, Paul, until I was forty in a public setting to senior people. Basically, my generation was kind of you know earn your spot, you'll get your spot. Where now my Kids were asking me why when I coach university football, I was coaching offense line one day. And this was a pinnacle part for me because I played university football. I never after asked my offensive line coach, why are we running? So one day, one young fella asked me, said, Hey coach, why do we really have to do conditioning? And I called over the head coach and said, Hey coach, I got a question for you. So what? He's asking me why we have to do conditioning. I haven't had to answer that one before. He goes, new world bill. So then I had to provide the, you know, so the, answering the why question now, we answer the why question. So the real point is, is that we want to get to the point where we're actually becoming more aware of the privileges we have and being mindful that people have a voice. And yes, experience is one part. Yes, young people can learn from experience. And yes, experience can learn from young people. One of my biggest mentoring that I do with younger executives, with older executives, is to coach them on how to mine that knowledge and to be mindful, to be respectful of how they were. Because uh, as we start to make this political correction, which is important, we're trying to create inclusion, but there's been so much oppression that... If the politically correct, if, if you say something wrong, folks now who felt impression for many years will be coming back with rigor versus this perhaps someone has some implicit bias and habits they've been doing for 25. It doesn't make it right. But as, if we really want to be able to do this, to create these type of workplaces, and this is what, what I think people want. They want places where they can learn. They can be the accountability is still there. People want to be held accountable. People want to learn. They want to grow. But I also think what the key to this is, is employers who are paying attention to how they, because of, you know, the values in the wall and all that kind of stuff, what's actually on the wall to what actually is really happening. And when we start to pay attention to what really is happening and be vulnerable and as Jim Collins, who probably one of the best books ever in business, you know, um, <laughs> good to great, is accept the brutal facts and be humble about it and realize, go, yeah, I never really, it's okay. Yeah, never saw that. Maybe I didn't see that. And then take action to correct it. And I think what I think that's reasonable. I don't think people want a free ride. I don't think people want to go surfboard all the time. I think people want to feel valued. But I th also think we, what is this the first time we have how many generations in the workforce now? Like if someone told me the other day, it's like six different generations for the first time in history. Like we have workers now are driving to work at 75 now. Mm. You know, I, I, I have one, one person, this is no, this is, you can't make this stuff up. He's 92 and drives to work every day. And running, overseeing like a multi-billion dollar organization, different people are running it, but 92, still going to the gym. So you, like the reality is, is that we're, 
we're living longer. And what we need to be aware of that many people are not retirement. Lots of people can't wait for it. You know, you look at someone like me, I've been working 35 plus years. I don't know. What, what the hell am I going to do with retirement? Like, I, I want to use my mind. So I think what, what that's the point. People want to feel valued. And that's the whole concept around workplace mental health. It's no longer a soft, fluffy thing. There's all kinds of scientific evidence. Employees who feel welcome, safe, valued, that spend more time in positive emotions, are more likely to thrive and provide great work. And the other thing that's important, you probably already know this, is employees who are stressed, read Chris Voss, some of his work, who was one of your most famous hostage negotiators with the FBI, retired and great teacher now. It's almost a 30% delta in intellectual capacity. So you have employees who are fearful, stressed, worried, tense, compliant. They're going to lose their creativity, innovation, and potential. And so we, right now, mental health, Paul, is not from your eyes up. It's actually from 80% of it's your eyes down, your vagus nerve, your physiology, how your body's working, your sleep, your energy, your nutrition, your hydration, all of these things going back to the photocopier, that's the juice. How we take care of ourselves, how our environment and our social quality of our social connections, which are critical because that's your protective factor when you're really, really stressed. It's being around safe relationships. So I'm not going to summarize everything you said, but here's some things I'm kind of just picking up on. Sure. When a company is trying to either start up a small company or maybe let's just say a corporation is trying to redo their leadership structure, yeah. you've got to find leaders who have their ego in check, to quote psychology, mm-hmm. uh, in a very kind of off the cuff way. And and there's a term here that's not even, I don't think it's in psychology books, but somebody coined it. And I I heard it said in a few podcasts and in a few articles, it's called emotional sobriety. Have you heard of this term? I'm not even sure. Like, I don't even know. That was not taught in my graduate school, nor at any psychology conference I've been to, but I thought it was kind of interesting. It just basically sounds like resilience work, Mm -hmm. but the ability to kind of regulate your strong emotions, ability to regulate your mood, Ability to maintain perspective, which means you can't be too stressed because it's hard to maintain perspective when you're stressed or triggered. To make sure you're not having, you know, doing harmful behaviors at work and like drinking under your desk or something. Uh, Ability to regulate activity levels, um, being in the moment, being present with people, and being able to develop deep, intimate connections with others, as well as trying to figure out, asking for help when you're having a a problem so that you can work on your resiliency. And those factors obviously were probably lifted from some resilience book and and research because it's a very pop psychology term. But I, I liked it because I thought about leaders and I think about this and it's like, you want someone who's not just gonna go off the, go off the deep end and react when something bad ha- or something awkward or, or frustrating happens in a workplace. So it's got to start with the leadership right there. Do, do your leaders have emotional regulation skills? Are they working on themselves or are they just telling everybody else to do it? Like the, you know, practice what you preach sort of old adage. Uh, the next thing I'm seeing is environment is so key to the, to the job, which is what parameters do you have set up so that the worker is not overworked, but not underworked. They yeah. have purpose. They have a why. Mm-hmm. They're showing up, 
but they also have safety. And that means not, not only material safety, if you, if you're in a job that requires security, but, um, safety to be who they want to be within reason, within workplace standards. And that includes, um, obviously learning about implicit bias and structural racism. And obviously something we have been going through for years, which is sort of like, um, uh, workplace harassment, bullying, sexual harassment, things like that, that were hard, uh, have been um, hot button issues for years. We want to create that place as well. And what do we do when people are upset? Who do they go to? Where's the safety in that? And what do we do if we, if, if somebody starts bullying people, like, you know, we have, there's so many things. It's almost as if, and this is this may sound compl- this is completely reductionistic and kind of a joke, but it kind of reminds me of elementary school. You know, oh, wh- who's in charge? Is this a is this teacher going to yell at us? Are they going to be nice? Do we have snack time? Do we have nap time? Are we do we are, are, are they demanding that I read the whole Kill a Mockingbird in one week, or do I have enough time? You know, how are they accommodating my my ADHD? And this kid's a bully and he threw mud at me on the, uh, what are you going to do about it? Is he allowed in this classroom? Is he have to go to a special classroom, AKA another job? You know, it reminds me of like the basics of life. And I, I remember joking about, um, when I worked in social services completely, it was a a nonprofit, it was just an insane mess. And I, I just said, I think that if we had a a family therapist or a a marriage and family therapist doctorate come in here and just analyze this organization for a week, he would lose all his, or he or she would lose all of their hair because of the amount of family dynamics that are playing out unconsciously among the workers here is astounding. And I do think, you know, it could make a TV show, AKA kind of like the office, you know, that show where, where the family dynamic, where people were not really introspective. You've seen that show. It's, it was a TV show in the U S and yeah. in the UK. So I think about this, the leaders have to be, it's gotta, it's gotta trickle down. You know, there's an old saying, the fish rots from the head. So mm-hmm. if, if the leader is, is not in, in an emotional place to lead, how can they lead and create this environment, this safety, this, this, ha- this, why this, it, it, and it's got to be real. It can't be BS because I don't know about Canada, but every millisecond you're advertised something in the U.S. some on some screen or billboard or something. Some oh, this is this is a new one in the mall parking lots. They've got radios now. Have you heard this? They've got speakers playing. Oh, you haven't had that? Okay, good. Well, in the U.S., if you come to certain malls, they play music in the in the parking lot with ads and at gas stations. It's getting real bad. Mm-hmm. Um, so we're we you know. I think again, the youth are smelling BS. You know, you can you can PR anything, right? You can make anything, and you can spin anything. But wh- what's really going on on the floor? Like, and I guess that's the brutal truth. So, I guess I'm I'm encouraged that this research is finally not just in journals, like it's being applied here. Because I do think, you know, as therapists, we spend all this time helping people about their home life and their relationships and their kids. And the drugs and alcohol and their spiritual existential questions. And that's the eight hours, well, supposedly eight hours of the day they get off work. You know, some of this stuff is during work, obviously. We've got eight hours of sleep. We've got our sleep experts. We're all taking that seriously. Well, most people in, in like, well, not most people, but a fair number of people work somewhere around eight hours a day, you know, four or five days a week. So I, I'm glad that this is finally being implemented there. And it's not just like some terrible world you check in and check out with your punch card and the clock and like in the old cartoons i guess we're on the old real reality i guess um that this work is being uh, brought in there um i don't know thoughts on that before i throw another question your way 
Yeah, no, I I agree with you. I think we're to be quite the level set too. I think we're on. I think we're just starting to pioneer. I think if you think about it, you know, think about. I, I quite this to think about the employer who wouldn't want to be the employer that's not doing an engagement. So engagement started up, and whether it's being done right or wrong, that many employers started paying attention to engagement, and then all of a sudden diversity inclusion started up. Now you right or wrong, it's you can argue if it's being done correctly, and if we're getting any real progress, but you wouldn't want to be the employer now not doing diversity inclusion. The next wave I think you're going to see is psychological health and safety in the workplace and realizing that the environment factors, human beings aren't machines, that the reality that we make 80% of all our decisions emotional. So the point being, what this is really about is facilitating irrational people who make emotional decisions. So you think about all the different variables that happen, and it's not that we're like people are half cocked, but we all have mental health. And so we all can be disappointed. We all can feel violated. We all can feel rudeness. We all can feel incivility. We all have emotions. And all emotions are are warning signs. He never tells us what to do or feel. But human beings have between 12 and 60,000 thoughts a day. And if you're spending the vast majority of your time saying this sucks, that sucks, this sucks, then you're you're actually training your brain through a neuroplasticity perspective to store a lot of stuff that you, that's the lens you start to create. So your persona of how you experience the world is not all on you, but it is on you because you own it in regards to you have free will still between every stimulus and response. We have a choice. Doesn't mean it's an easy choice. May not be a convenient choice, but learning how to get our own internal locus control is our power as human beings. Because ultimately, you know, man's search for meaning or any of these wonderful pieces of literature, we all ultimately have free choice. That's what the great resignations has been about. Lots of people to your friend who the 400,000 who are terrified about having enough money, they're actually starting to say, hey, I actually want to live my life. So I'm going to start to rethink what's important to me and because maybe all the stress through some post-traumatic growth, people are starting to mature that they're starting to say, hey, my kid's a little bit more important than that bonus. My partner's a little bit more important. My health is a little bit more important. And that's what employers need to wake up to, too, is that we're evolving again. We all know there's a war going on in Ukraine. We all know that Taiwan and China are having challenges. We all know about global warning. Mean, we all know about political. So it's like many human beings now is kind of what's the next thing that's going to get us? Monkeypox. It's pandemic. Like it, you know, it's 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 relentless. I've never in my 50 plus year have seen so much stuff coming out of culture. And we just continue to nod and push and push and push and push. We do have a capacity. As human beings. And I think we have a finite resource. So the more employers are starting to pay attention to, hey, you know what? We're harnessing potential, which is really how do we help our workers and our leaders spend more time feeling okay? And that doesn't mean that you and I can't have a spit down debate conflict. But once we get through it, let's leave it there and learn how to move on. 
I agree with that. And yeah, the great resignation is also, I think one of my friends said it was the great reevaluation, um, which was why the hell am I working here? And for what purpose? Why am I doing this for this much money? I'll take less or I'll do something else or I'll take part-time jobs because what's more important, my health, my family. I think COVID-19 really um, brought that out. Life is short. We had all these people dropping like flies. I mean, I, I, I almost don't know anybody who didn't know somebody who was either really sick or died from from this uh, this uh, virus. So I think people are going, what? I was caught up in, you know, going, going, going more, more, more. Maybe it's, maybe it more, maybe less is more. Um, I, I, and a lot of folks in my generation, I've been, this is, this is another thing I've been hearing. They say, um, well, I don't really believe in retirement anymore. Like you just said. They said, I need to find something I can do that I like doing that I'm just going to keep doing. And maybe I'll just do a little less when I'm older. Maybe when I'm in my 70s and 80s and I don't have enough energy, I'm just going to do it two days a week or three days a week. But I don't see myself stop working. Why would, I, don't, I don't love golf that much that I really want to be out there every day on the links, you know, with a, with a you know, Arnold Palmer tee and, and sort of dissociating from society, right? I want to be involved. I'm interested in what's going on. And I think we are evolving. Well, I don't think I know we are evolving according to the science I read. It's just, it takes a while to, you, you don't know when you're evolving. You kind of look at it in retrospect, right? We, we, we see, oh, so consciousness is definitely evolving. And, and, and the interesting thing is we're even seeing this and in our clinic and, and, therapists I talked to across the U.S., I'm seeing 12-year-old kids say stuff like this, which when I was 12, I had no concept of what we're talking about here at all that are talking about, um, they're thinking about um, what kind of job do I want that doesn't suck? Like that's like the language they're using, right? That wasn't popular to talk about. What I heard when I was 12 was well, you need to get a, the coolest job to be as popular or as rich as possible. That was kind of the cultural trope I was, I was told, right? Power, mm. uh, excitement, uh, status, right? And now people are going, what good is status if I'm 100 pounds overweight, I'm an alcoholic, my relationships all suck, I, but I have a pretty good bank account and a really cool house. What, what is this, right? What is health? What is wealth? Health yeah. is wealth, right? Health is wealth, not wealth is wealth. Because what is wealth? If you're in the US and you have a stock portfolio, as you know, you may be missing around 30% since January. So am I. What did that do for me? Nothing, right? And, and if I'm about to retire, I'm in, I'm in. So I think people are rethinking what is value. And like you said, money is a tool or, or, a, or, or an access gainer. But how much is how much do I need? What am I willing to sacrifice? What is the trade-off? Um, what is the trade-off for my behavior and uh, to get this money? There's a book called Essentialism. Have you heard that book? Yeah. Yeah. He's a corporate guy who kind of went wild with achievement and, <laughs> and realized that he had been missing his entire life. And then he writes it. I thought it was a pretty good book about how to, how to say no to things and focus on to what your zone of genius is. And it's pretty good mental lessons, but I uh, think about that book as well. So yeah, that's, those are my thoughts there. Yeah, that's awesome. Yeah, no, I like it. No, I think I agree with everything you just said. I think it's, you're spot on. Excellent. So I want to know, um, you know, going forward, uh, you, you're doing this work. I mean, you're literally in the trenches right now working with fortune 500 
companies, I'm assuming, and, and different people like that, uh, working on, what, what do you want to call it, corporate wellness, employee wellness? Yeah, psychological health and safety in the workplace. It's Thank you. That's much better. Yeah. Psychological health and safety in the workplace. Okay. And I guess what I'm wondering is, you kind of said, what is the future? But what are you, what are you hoping to you know, what, what, what is one of your next like passion projects as you, as you go about doing your work? Well, right now, the next area, which I'm really, really focusing on, and I'm working with some pretty good folks and actually was talking to a fellow from Yale about it yesterday is starting to create uh, learning platforms of how to start leveraging. There's been over 300,000 mental health apps developed and the thing that I'm watching as I'm intrigued is digital health is going to become a big part of prevention, but the adherence and creating habits and incentivizing and learning how to engage people to develop what I believe are core skills. You're right. You, resiliency is not an innate skill or it's a trainable skill. Your environment is a part of your resiliency. So I'm looking at now working on technology of how we can integrate technology as a, an enabler to provide employers information on how to hold them accountable, information employees, like you can buy employees a, a fitness membership, for example, but they still have to have time to get on the bloody machine and they still got to get want to get on the machine to get fit. So the, the question is, is how do you start to help people become aware of what they can do to improve their mental health. And many human beings that learn mental fitness realize that it's amazing if you take three or four minutes a day and something as simple as write the three, you know, three wins of the day and why they were wins. So they can start to train their brain to start noticing everything they have in their life. The gratitude research, we both know what's fine from there because you activate the reptilian activating system of your brain and start realizing, hey, geez, there are good things happen in my life because we have a negativity bias, we skew things. So I'm, I want to really start to focus more on technology, how to help organizations become psychological health safe. But I think the part of it is, is understand for the sustainability. I see a day where the potential is for, you see, IT security training, part of co corporate governance. You see DI training now, part of corporate governance. I can see a day where CEOs will be held accountable for the psychological safety of the workforce. I think the pendulum is moving where if employees feel fear and silence, like the Wells Fargo and the Volkswagen stories of the world, that, that CEOs will need to do the following, not only focus on what profit they're going to get, but how they're getting it. I think those, those days are where we're going. That's the, my next big focus I'm on. Oh, I like that. So not what profit they're getting, but how they're getting profit. Yeah. I think that is a huge shift. And I, I love how you simplified that. It's probably why you're an expert in the field, because I've been thinking about that. I, you know, I hear people talk about um, a lot of the young 20 somethings I know now are saying, should I get a lab grown diamond that I'm sure has never caused any sort of uh, local destruction of the environment and people, you know, working for slave wages? Or should I get a diamond mined somewhere that may be supposedly ethically sourced? But how, what's that mean? Right. Who's monitoring that? Right. Whose lens are we looking through? You yeah. Know? Um, so people are really becoming conscious, you know, of what 
what are we using? What, what is around us? Um, I think maybe, I don't know what it is. It's just awareness is increasing about, and maybe just because the connection to the world, we're seeing how people live in other countries, even without visiting. I mean, I think visiting, I've visited many other countries in my, uh, life. Cause I was l- lucky enough to be able to do that. Um, when I was uh, in, in my twenties and well now even, and I, I, it opened my eyes up to the world. Right. And na- and a lot of Americans don't ever, a lot of the United States citizens never even leave the U S right. So large, they just go to another beach somewhere. Mm-hmm. Um, so, but, but what now I'm seeing is thanks to TikTok and which I don't even have that one, but Instagram and Facebook, we're now, they're now learning all about the world through people telling them right on the internet, right there, this is how I live. This is what I'm up to. This is what my values are. And I think that is just blowing up um, the discussion. So I, I love that. I think that's a pretty good stopping point. Um, I really want to just make sure people, I'm going to link all of your websites and things in the show notes today. And I want to make sure we have the name of your book again, that's coming out. What's that called again? No regrets. No regrets. Okay. Love it. Nice title. Um, and that will also be available. Um, will that be available uh, wherever fine books are sold, like sort of thing, or is it through a university press? Or no, no, it's all you'll find it in all of all the all the big uh, bookstores and websites. The you know the Barnes and Noble, Amazon, all those things that are convenient. And uh, pre sales are going on now, which released globally in October. Wonderful. That's so awesome. Uh, well, thank you so much for your time. And I always give people the opportunity. Is there any parting words you want to say for the audience who's out there listening? No, I just feel honored and privileged, happy to be here. Thanks for having me. And I it, I think these are, these are good. It's, uh, the more we can facilitate conversations and learn from each other, the better. So keep up your great work and thanks for having me. Thanks, Dr. Bill Howitt. I've learned a lot from you as well. All right. Thank you. Wash my face and comb my hair And stumble down the stairs to meet the day And there you have it. This has been another episode of the Intentional Clinician Podcast with Paul Krauss. If you are looking to know more about Dr. Bill Howitt and his work, check out the show notes in this episode where you will get links to his website, his company, and some of his books. And or you can just use your favorite search engine. If you are looking for an EMDR IA consultant, I am now an EMDRIA consultant and can provide 20 hours needed to become EMDRIA certified. I am running groups right now. If you want to know more, go to counselingsupervisorgr.com and send me a message or healthforlifegr.com. If you are enjoying this podcast, please share it with somebody you know. I'd surely appreciate it. You can also leave us a rating on iTunes. If you are in need of counseling, do not hesitate to make an appointment with a local counselor in your area. You can also make an appointment with the excellent clinicians in the Grand Rapids area at Health for Life Counseling and the Trauma-Informed Counseling Center of Grand Rapids by visiting www.healthforlifegr.com. And if you are in the state of Michigan at all and you want to use your health insurance for counseling, check us out because we now have a small, dedicated team that works specially with people that want online counseling. So no matter where you are in the state of Michigan, if you have health insurance, or even if you don't, give us a call, 616-200-4433, or check out healthforlifegr.com, and we have specialist counselors that will work with you. Remember, listening to this podcast consists of the personal opinions of Paul Kraus and his guest, and while these are based upon literature they have read and their experiences in the field, These views should not be viewed as the definitive opinion on any subject. Listening to this podcast is not a substitute for treatment. 
If you are in a crisis, please dial 911 right now. And if you are in a psychological crisis, you can now dial 988. That's 988, which is the new suicide and crisis lifeline in the United States. And a crisis counselor will respond to you. If you are needing help, you can also text 741741, and a live trained crisis counselor will respond. Did you know that you could support your local bookstore by shopping at www.bookshop.org? You can order books from the comfort of your own home while supporting local brick-and-mortar businesses near you, also known as bookstores near you. If you are a therapist and you are not a member of your local or national counseling association, I highly suggest that you join. If you didn't know... Government officials and large corporations are trying to devalue your work, trying to essentially help you get paid like a gig worker. So if you want to get best practices promoted in schools, in workplaces, in your community, and you want to help keep people accessible by the public and have some autonomy in your workplace, get involved. For instance, the Michigan Mental Health Counselors Association, the Arizona Counselors Association, the American Counseling Association, the American Mental Health Counselors Association, and even the National Organization of Social Workers. Check it out. Get involved because this field is going through a lot of turmoil right now. If you want to get trained in EMDR therapy, check out EMDR Training Solutions. I have a code. The code is the word intentional, and it gets you $100 off your first training at checkout. These people are amazing. They do wonderful trainings all over the nation. And if you are a parent or know somebody who is parenting a young adult, I have a Parents of Young Adult course that is on the website Udemy. I will have a link in the show notes. It is very low cost. Udemy is running sales all the time. I've seen it on sale for $10, and it's about a five-and-a-half-hour course. And you can check it out, and the link will be in the show notes. Until next time on The Intentional Clinician, I'm wishing you all a safe and peaceful week. I was born one morning when the sun didn't shine I picked up my shovel and I walked to the mine I loaded 16 tons of number nine coal And the straw ball said, well, bless my soul You load 16 tons, and what do you get? Another day older and deeper in debt St. Peter, don't you call me cause I can't go I owe my soul to the company store In a cane break by an old mama line Ain't no high tone woman Make me walk the line You load 16 tons And what do you get? Another day older and deeper in debt St. Peter, don't you call me Cause I can't go I owe my soul to the company store Get you then the left one will you load 16 tons and what do you get another day older and
deeper in debt. St. Peter, don't you call me cause I can't go. I owe my soul to the company store. 